Hi, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Arlo Crawford. He's the author of A Farm Dies Once a Year, which is just out from Henry Holt. And I'm delighted you could come in to talk with us today, Arlo. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. This is a memoir about a couple of months that you spent going back to the farm that you grew up on. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. It's a small organic vegetable farm, probably about 30 acres actually under cultivation. The land is a little bigger. And my parents started farming about 40 years ago. So the farm is pretty well established now. When my parents started in the early 70s, there was a few people doing this and sort of it's gotten more and more popular over over the last few decades. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting place. When you were growing up, you write about how you could not wait to get off the farm at the first uh -huh. available opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So what brings you back? It was sort of a unique situation in that my parents were not from Pennsylvania. We're not, did not grow up as farmers. So, um, we all were sort of a little bit of outsiders there. I think not all three of us, or my whole family, my sister included a little, always sort of thought of there was other places to go, you know, that we would be in other places. So for me to leave, Felt natural, and I moved to New York uh, after college, and then I moved to Boston. But one thing about the farm was that people here were just always, always interested in hearing about it. All my life, people were interested about it. And I always sort of thought of that as a burden, you know? Like, I, it was always like, it's like if you've got some obvious thing, it's like you get tired, you know, you don't always want to talk about growing up on a farm. You know, it's like I have other things about I know, life. exactly. <laughs> I'm not just a kid from a farm, damn it. I was living in Boston. I guess I was 30, a little older. And I was taking a writing class, and I wrote, I, the class was to write three, we wrote three pieces. And I wrote the first two, and I got good reactions. But the last piece, I said, you know what? I'm just going to write a piece about the farm, which I had really resisted doing. And the reaction to it was just so overwhelming in this class. People just loved this thing about the farm. And it really... All of a sudden, I think it, it made me realize that rather than feeling kind of burdened by this story, having grown up on a farm, maybe I could tell that story in a way that made me happy to tell it, you know? So that was really kind of a light switch moment for me, I think. Like, I can make the farm, the story of the farm, my own story, rather than it always being the story sort of of my parents, and, like, I was always sort of incidental. So I think that was that was a big part of the process. You left your job in Cambridge yeah. at the Art Museum after, yeah. after the writing class, and the plan was pretty much you were going to go down first, and then your girlfriend was going to join you. What was it like? being back those first couple of days it was a little nerve-wracking you know you have these big plans right in your life and you think oh i'm gonna do this thing and it's gonna be great and you you have these big plans and then you show up and you're like well shit now i gotta do the thing you know i don't know where like it seemed great in the abstract but like the actual concrete idea of being back on the farm it, it was really i didn't know where to get started you know i mean the farm is such it's especially that you know it's a very busy place there's a lot going on everyone's sort of knows what they're doing i don't know even though i grew up there i didn't i don't know what i'm doing like even that first day there's really like a kind of like oh shit mo moment where i was like well i'm here yeah it's like there's that scene where you you wake up that first morning and uh -huh. you're puttering around in the kitchen right get, getting ready to get some coffee trying to figure out it's like well what am i gonna i don't have no idea what i'm gonna do and even i who have never grown up on a farm i'm thinking yeah. it's like 
someone is going to come along and tell you about like half a dozen things that you could be doing instead of puttering around the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing about growing up. I mean, going, the, one of the luxuries of growing up on a farm mm-hmm. and is that you can kind of always go back there because there's always work to do there, you know, like you get fired, like, well, there's, at least there's work at home, you know? And so I knew that when I was going to it. And, and so, I mean, when I say that I didn't know what I was doing, I mean, I did know that I could keep myself busy. So the farm has a crew of interns, not kids so much, but people in their 20s. And they've become, over the last, say, eight years, they've become really professionalized. It used to be when I was little, it was much more sort of like a summer camp. I mean, that wasn't really, but it was like people were like, okay, I want to spend a season on a farm because I think it'll be fun and it'll be, you know, but now it's really people who are sort of, this is what they want to do for their career. So for me to go back there now is sort of like, in a way, it's like me showing up on the shop floor and being like, okay, you know, like I'm the son of the owner, like, can I run the drill press? And they're like, you can't run the drill press. No. So there was some of that. You know, and I really had to sort of make the balance where I had to kind of humble myself and do the work that was really the even, you know, the most basic kind of jobs, you know, because that was really all I was suited to do. You know, I wasn't I don't know how to run the cultivator. You know, this person who knows how to do that's been practicing for a long time. So you're pretty upfront in the memoir about how, you know, even before you show up at the farm, you and your your younger sister mm-hmm. have no interest yeah. in the farm as becoming the next generation of Crawford farmers. But when you come back, as you do for this project, is there maybe still some sort of residual hope in your parents that, well, maybe he's going to love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because my father, when he started the farm, when he started farming, he left law school, and which is what his mother really had expectations for my father to sort of be a lawyer, you know? And I mean, this is a very common story, I think, but, you know, he said, I'm leaving law school behind, forget it, I'm going to be a farmer. And she was really, I mean, they were supportive, Her his parents were, my grandparents were supportive, but to some degree, they were also very hesitant. I think that experience with my father of having to not, of, of his parents having expectations for him, has always made him very wary of putting expectations on me and on my sister, because I think he says, you know, I didn't want to do the project that my parents wanted me to do, and I don't want my kids to feel like they have to do my project. So I don't think that my parents do have a lot of residual. I don't think there's really much... I mean, I think, obviously, they're my parents, and obviously this is a very important thing to them, and they want me to appreciate it, but I don't feel a lot of pressure to kind of pick up where they where they set it down. And, and spoiler alert, this memoir does not end with you falling in love with the farm and deciding to make it your life. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> it does not. Um, although I do leave and I end up working in a produce, a produce store in, uh, in San Francisco. So I guess produce is sort of always going to be in my blood in, in one way or the other. The produce, actually, that actually reminds me of one of the things about the farm that, that jumped out at me was your, your folks' farm particularly it sounds like over the last 20 years or so, Uh has really benefited from this growing trend towards like people loving organic produce and especially like farmer's markets. It sounds Mm -hmm. like that they've got um, a pretty good circuit of uh, of markets in the Pennsylvania down all the way down to DC yeah, that, yeah. that they are benefiting from regularly. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting. I mean my parents only really only sell in DC. Although when they first started in the 70s they sold much more locally. I think their very first farm stand was in Hagerstown, Maryland. You can imagine there was not much call for organic produce in Hagerstown, Maryland in 1973. But the the rise of farmers markets 
when my father, say maybe this was maybe again six, eight years ago, all these markets got started in Washington. All of a sudden, there were all these markets starting in D.C. and very close to my father, you know, and he said, oh, geez, I'm going to lose all this business because there's a market opening right down the street. And really, it's the exact opposite is that. With every market that opens, there's just, there's this sort of limitless pool of customers that just, it's just his businesses goes up every single year, even though there are many, many markets very close in close proximity to his. My parents both teamed up with another two farmers and started a market in Adams Morgan in Washington, which is actually still going. That was one of the only farmers markets in DC at the time. Um, and then my father has always had just his sold just by himself, not with any other farmers. He's gone to neighborhoods and set up just himself. So his market on Saturday mornings is not a farmer's market, really. It's just my father at a schoolyard. So that's kind of a unique situation. My mother sells at a market on Sundays at DuPont Circle, which is sort of has like 30 other farmers. So that's the sort of more normal farmer's market scenario. And yeah, just it seems like people... The rise of farmers markets is just really fascinating because it's making it possible to for these farm young farmers to have a career doing this because there's a market for their their goods, you know. And when you talk about the business getting better each mm-hmm. year, there's a point where you talk about one of the crops failing during the period that you were there uh-huh. that it ends up basically being you know it sets the farm back like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, for one yeah. Of, and it's like I think for a lot of people. It's only when you actually say it out loud that the number that, that the numbers and the finances really kind of click there. That it's sure. like that's like oh yeah, you know you could be making a hundred thousand dollars a season selling one vegetable. One of the things about that that number and one of the things I think is interesting is with the way that a farm works when there's a big loss like that is you can you can also take those resources that you would have given to cultivating that crop, which is now completely gone. That hundred thousand dollars is off the table. But all that work time that you would have spent with that crop, you can move to another crop. So you can make up, it's not necessarily just a straight loss. You know, it's not like you had a ship full of spices and they sunk in the sea, you know, they're just gone. I mean, it's really about kind of being flexible. And I think, you know, I saw my father, I mean, even yesterday he was saying, oh, you know, we just like lost $20,000 at this thing, you know, but then you'll talk to him next week and he's like, ah, we like, you know, we found $15,000, you know, so there's this constant, like, these very large swings in the finances, but somehow it generally, the upward trend is, there's an upward trend, I think, so. And even within that, though, it sounds like the profit margins are pretty narrow. They are narrow. Farmers markets are, are particularly good way model for farmers because it's you know they don't have to sell to a wholesaler so they get retail price for their vegetables which helps a lot because i mean the wholesale produce market those margins are vanishingly small but yeah i mean there is not a lot of i mean a farm takes a lot of resources and a lot of money to keep going i mean it's a lot of equipment and and it's also the biggest cost is it's just incredibly labor intensive you know so i mean you have to pay people to (laughs) <laughs> to do it. And that's, and labor is really the biggest cost for my parents by far. So yeah, I mean, even though they make a lot, they can make sometimes a lot of money in, in a single weekend, what they end up with is absolutely a middle class wage. They're never going to get wealthy doing this. Now you were used to the farmer lifestyle growing up so that when you came back for this, it was a little adjustment period, but you got sure. back into the swing of it. Yeah, yeah. What was it like for your girlfriend at the point where she comes to join you? So Sarah, my girl, now my wife, 
She was really gung-ho about this project. She was really supportive, and she was not so happy in her job at the time. Her plan was to kind of come to the farm, and like, and she was <laughs> one of the things, she was planning on doing a lot of yoga, which I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to go to an organic farm, and in the mornings I'll do yoga, and then I'll work in the... I, I don't think Sarah did a single pose of yoga after she got there. One of the things that she realized very quickly is just that there isn't, it, this is not sort of a Zen meditative situation. This isn't a place where you go to decompress, you know, to the contrary. Like you're, this is a very, especially at the height of summer when sort of Sarah got there, it's a very, very kind of pressure cooker situation. So I think that was interesting for Sarah and, you know, to see how intense it was and to realize how hard the work was, it was all just, it was kind of eye-opening for her, so. But at the same time, as you said, she's now your wife, so clearly it was not a pressure cooker that broke the relationship in any No. Sense. Also, there was the expectation that this was sort of a limited time. Mm -hmm. I can tell you for sure that if I said to Sarah, Sarah, I want to move back to the farm permanently, <laughs> we you know, would have a long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did not want to hear that. Like, God. I'd... So, yeah. She loves the farm and she loves uh, Pennsylvania, but I, I don't think she has any interest in, uh, in moving back there. So what would you say is the biggest thing that you learned about yourself and you're in your life during the period that, that you spent back on the farm. One of the things that when I came back to the farm and I came back to it in a time to sort of, when I came back to it from a viewpoint of wanting to sort of understand it rather than just, I mean, when I was growing, I mean, when you're growing up there, you're just in it, you know, you don't really think about it. Um, but I went back there specifically to understand it. And I think one of the things that was really interesting was just to understand that how what my parents, when my parents had started this thing, how ballsy a move that was, you know, to like just go out to the middle of nowhere without knowing how to be farmers and be like, we're going to start a farm and make our living this way. And I think when I understood that, you know, and partly it's just, I think this is a, what a lot of people go through at that age, this age in your you know, 30s is you realize that you're going to have to do it yourself. You know, like you, you have the responsibility to make, to take these risks if you want these things. So I don't know that that's something that I learned about myself, but I think it's something that I learned about my situation that you got to just do it, <laughs> you know. And it sounds like it also really helps to put your parents' situation in a fuller context as well, like being able to look at it from this adult perspective. Yeah. You know, and, and also to ask questions that you either might not have thought to ask when you were younger or sure. would not have expected answers to when you were younger. And just not, I mean, you don't, when you're younger, you don't think about your parents as being adults. I mean, being, being people, you know, it's like you don't think of your fourth grade teacher as being a person and then you see her in the grocery store and you're like, oh my God, wait, wait, my teacher's a real person in the world. You know, it's sort of the same thing with your parents and you get older and you realize like, oh my God, my parents are struggling with this. Like they're human beings too. I think just interacting with my parents as all of us adults really made me, and I mean, like everyone, I have my, <laughs> I have my frustrations with my parents too, but made me really appreciate what they had done. And it, in, in a weird kind of way, it's also, it's incidental that, you know, what they did was a farm because I don't have an interest in starting a farm, but it, but it's still important that they took that risk. And now you mentioned that it was a writing class assignment mm -hmm. that got you thinking about the farm to mm -hmm. begin with and set you on this path. What sort of motivated you? And, and I guess how early into the process did you start thinking about writing about what you were experiencing? 
You mean in terms of doing this, not just going to the farm and doing this, but coming up with the memoir? Yeah. Well, I was sort of ready to go from the get-go. I mean, I was planning on writing about it from the from the beginning. So it wasn't that I sort of I, I wasn't writing really during the season. Um, I didn't start really kind of sitting down with the material until afterwards. But in some ways, you know, I thought of this as a. I mean, obviously it's a memoir, but I also thought of this book as sort of a travelogue, going to kind of a foreign land and kind of understanding the customs and the landscape of a foreign place, even though it was where I grew up. And so I wouldn't say this book has a lot of sort of, I mean, it, it, there's an aspect of it that I think has sort of, reporting isn't fair, but I mean, isn't true necessarily, but just kind of getting at the detail of how a farm actually runs. I think people are just kind of communicating this this pocket of culture, you know, this pocket, this way that people do things, I think was important to me. So in that way, I was kind of, as I was going through this, I was also paying attention to the things that I thought might be, might be interesting to, to tell people more about. A friend of mine said, well, what happens on a farm all day long? Like what happens for 12 hours? And I mean, there are like 25 different jobs happening on a, you know, a normal day and just kind of explaining what each one of those 25 jobs is or something a little bit about one of those 25 jobs, I think is just, it's a really rich subject. So there's a lot to explore there. Are there other writers, I'm thinking, I guess, primarily one of memoir writers, but then maybe two perhaps of people who are doing that kind of like observational writing about farming in either category? Were there writers that you sort of look to as, as models or, or possible starting points or jumping off points? Specifically about farming, I don't think so, you know? I mean, one of the things that I, why I wanted to write this book is because I had never read, read a book that seemed true to me about farming, you know? And there's a lot of books that are sort of, I think of them as the deeply rooted idea, you know? It's like the title is something like deeply rooted because it's about how and culturally important farming is and had the sort of deep roots of community. I was sort of less interested in that idea, I think. I mean, books that I am particularly interested, or, I mean, I, there's a few things that I've read, I've read that are stop time sort of being the, cla uh, the classic kind of memoir model. And, you know, a book that's not, uh, not a memoir, but I think So Long See You Tomorrow William Maxwell, that book is just so important to me because it is about a kid on a farm. It's a very short book, It's but it really is not. It's about a murder of a farmer, a sort of incidental murder, and just about a, a kid feeling very kind of dislocated in a rural setting, although that book is about town and country. But that book is a really important starting place for me, um, was a really important starting place. I mean, the books that I sort of, writers that I love, somebody like, Jeff Dyer. I mean, that that kind of book, when I think about the writing that I want to do, it sort of has that edge. It has that irony. That's the sort of writing that I think I want to produce. And then I sat down to write this book and it sort of ended up being the exact opposite book than I had, I had, I had in my mind when I started. And I think it, it became something much more, there's not a lot of irony in it, you know, for better or worse. And I was surprised about that myself. I was really surprised. And, I, and after I wrote, well after I wrote the book, and people said, oh, well, obviously you wrote a book about your dad, your relationship with your dad. Like, I never had, that. it never occurred to me. I was like, I didn't set out to write a book about my dad, you know? So that was a really strange, you know, the writers that I start with, 
and I really love and appreciate is not necessarily what I end up producing myself. Where have you seen your writing going since then? Clearly, I mean, you turned this in a, a, a while back. Yeah, yeah. And I assume that you've been continuing to write since then. I have been. I have been writing since then. I live in San Francisco now, and I've been doing some work, freelance work for a design firm, writing about the projects they do. That kind of writing is so different because it's like that kind of writing is all about the aha moment. You find this great little phrase and you turn 400 words on it. You know, it's almost like a, you want this kind of show how clever you are. You want it to be very clever. It's like this clever little 400 word contraption, you know? And so doing that, I mean, I love doing that kind of writing too. But I mean, the book, as I was writing it, I found myself writing it that way and then Editing that out every single time, you know, coming back to it later and thinking that's not nearly as clever as I thought it was at the time. So in a weird way, it was like smoothing out all the uh, like aha moments <laughs> that it all those moments when you wake up in the middle of the night, you're like I've got a great idea, I've got to get it down on the page. And then a month later, you're like, that's a that that's too glib, that's too clever. But I like doing that too. So I think a lot of the writing I've done since then has been sort of opposite of, of the book. I mean, you write a book about your family, you sort of you're constrained by the fact that you're writing about your family. This is one of the most, this is the key, a fundamental relationship in your life. Whereas if you're writing about a new mascara bottle, you have all the freedom in the world to be clever. Like that's why it exists. You know, you don't have any, there's nobody's going to have their feelings hurt. <laughs> so it's a very, it's a very different kind of thing that I've been doing. Um, but also writing, I mean, essays, I still, I, I think bringing some of that experience, that, that kind of, more clever writing to an essay that feels more earnest is a great way to kind of make it something that's a good, the right balance of clever and, and earnest. So. so we will keep an eye out for some of those essays in the future. In the meantime, I've been talking with Arlo Crawford about his memoir, A Farm Dies Once a Year, which is just out from Holt. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. If you're subscribed to us on iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed on iTunes, it's very easy to do. And once you are, if you might possibly consider rating and reviewing the podcast, that would be great. It makes it a little bit easier for other people to find it in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Take care.